Good afternoon and welcome everybody. It's a great pleasure to introduce our friend, Peter Bergamin, who is, for the few of a few who do not know him, uh, Peter is a lecturer in Oriental Studies at Mansfield College. His research focuses on the period of the British Mandate for Palestine with um, particular interest in maximalist revisionist Zionism. His first book, The Making of the Israeli Far Right, Abba Achimeir and Zionist Ideology, published earlier this year, focused on the ideological and political genesis of one of the major leaders of pro-fascist far-right Zionism in the 1920s and 30s. <clears throat> Peter's current research, from which his lecture today is derived, examines uh, British archival sources to study the reasons for uh, Britain's withdrawal from its Palestine, ma Palestine mandate. And the title is given to his talk is uh, Guns and Moses, Jewish Anti-British Resistance During the Mandate for Palestine. Maybe before we begin, I must say that the title is a little bit too suggestive for us to, for many of us to resist uh, suggesting alternatives. So if we could keep it for the chat to offer you alternative uh, pop music references. <laughs> Peter, thank you for coming. Lovely to have you on our stage. Great, Yaakov, thank you very, very much for the invitation as always, and it's really fun to be here. And since you talked about the Guns N' Roses uh, reference, I just might uh, inform you all and kind of, I think we're all a bit fed up, oiskazumt, as I say in Yiddish at this stage of the term. So what I've done to try and keep everybody a little bit interested is um, embedded nine Guns N' Roses references into the lecture and just see if you can get them all you should be giving this lecture and not me. So um, I'm going to give a few minutes of context and then I'm going to go to the actual lecture itself. So the paper now examines the period from February 1944 when Menachem Begin and the Irgun declared a revolt against British rule, and I'll speak about that in a second and explain what that means, to April 1947 when Britain appealed to the United Nations to be released from the mandate for Palestine in order to show the true extent of Jewish anti-British insurgency in the final years of the mandate. But first, the context. So, in April 1939, in reaction to three years of Arab rebellion in Palestine and in the wake of an unsuccessful conference in February 1939 that had hoped to resolve the issue, the colonial secretary Malcolm MacDonald authored a white paper that spelled out future British policy in the region. It foresaw, and I quote, the establishment within 10 years of an independent Palestine state, possibly of a federal nature. Uh, end of quote, in treaty with Britain, of course, who would ensure its commercial and political durability. Not a big surprise, right? A transition period would precede this during which Britain would continue to act as the mandatory power again, not a surprise, and thus remain responsible for governance. The intention was for Arabs and Jews to participate equally in the governance of the country. Most damning of all, for the Jews at least, was the paper's limitation of immigration over the next five years to 10,000 per year with a contribution towards the solution of the Jewish refugee problem of 25,000 refugees as soon as the High Commissioner could ensure that conditions were adequate for their absorption. After the five-year period, there would be no further Jewish immigration unless sanctioned by the Palestinian Arabs. Furthermore, and I quote, His Majesty's government was determined to check illegal immigration against which, again, further preventive measures were being adopted and would be strictly enforced. Now, if we consider that by April 1939, half of Germany's Jewish population, over 300,000 refugees, had already left the country, Britain's proposed contribution of 25,000 was a rather meager one indeed. Likewise, McDonald's assertion that, now I hope this slide works. Yes, nope, next slide, hold on. Uh, oh my God, hold on, right. Okay, I'm stuck. Uh, it seems stuck. Yeah, hang on, It's I've got because I've got something else shooting up good old good old all right here we go how's it there we go um technology uh no not yet like oh yes okay yes likewise mcdonald's assertion that britain was satisfied that and i quote when the immigration over five years which is now contemplated has taken place his majesty's government will have no further obligation to facilitate the establishment of the jewish national home that's kind of left out when we talk about the white paper many times right so in a way britain kind of did a bit of smoke and mirrors and said oh we've already you know established a jewish national home so I would say this again in consideration of what was going on in, in Europe for European Jews at the time, this is kind of a rather hollow statement. Now, the Irgun, the revisionist underground resistance group under the various commands of David Raziel, Yaakov Meridor, had from March 1937 already begun a limited campaign of attacks on Arabs, which peaked between April and August 1938. 
in response to the Arab rebellion that had begun in 1936 and was ongoing. On 27th of February 1939, and as a protest against the London Conference in which it was felt that the British were making undue concessions to the Arabs, right? So they, they convened a conference in, in London um, in February 39, um, of which the White Paper was a product. Um, the, the Irgun, in protest of this, carried out a series of major bomb attacks in Haifa, Jerusalem, Jaffa, and Tel Aviv, in which 33 Arabs were killed. And it stepped up its game really once the details of the paper, the white paper were finalized. So from May to August 1939 already, the Irgun oversaw 15 attacks that killed 71 Arabs and two British policemen. However, with Britain's and France's declaration of war against Germany on the 3rd of September, uh, anti-British violence that had erupted in a protest to the white paper ceased. The author of the white paper, Malcolm MacDonald, who incidentally was not a member of Chamberlain's war cabinet, afterwards reported to the cabinet on the 19th of October that, and I quote, the Jews had given their support uh, unconditionally and violence had stopped. And this was to remain the case until the beginning of 1944. Now, in December 1943, Menachem Begin became the de facto commander of the Irgun in Palestine. Now, Begin would, of course, go on to become the Prime Minister of Israel in 1977, but uh, not yet. <laughs> now, once he was in place as the Irgun commander, the Irgun under Begin resumed its crusade of anti-British insurgency in spite of the group's modest resources and Britain's ongoing campaign against Nazi Germany. Now, with Begin and the Irgun lacked in resources, they made up for with vision, commitment, perhaps a bit of delusion, and certainly no small sense of desperation. Indeed, on the 1st of February, 1944, just, oops, sorry, uh, just two months after uh, into Begin's commandeership, the Irgun declared a revolt against the British government in Palestine. And on that same day, the group undertook a postering campaign throughout the Yeshuv, addressed to the Hebrew nation in Zion, and in particular the Hebrew youth. Hebrew youth, it demanded um, a, a bunch of things, rule over Eretz Israel, uh, National Hebrew Army, etc. You can read that yourselves while I continue to talk about other things. Now, after the Allied victory in May 1945, Winston Churchill suffer, suffered a surprise defeat in a national election that saw his deputy prime minister and leader of the Labour Party, Clemens Attlee, become prime minister on the 26th of July. He was only, by the way, the second Labour politician to hold the post. Now, the Attlee government proposed no change to the white paper, in spite of what they had said at their conference uh, earlier that year, the Labour conference, and the foreign minister, Ernest Bevan, rather notably believed that there should be no special treatment to Europe's Jewish refugees. In other words, German and German-Jewish refugees were all the same. He saw no reason why Jewish displaced persons should be treated as a special body as such, nor why they could not be repatriated in their original home nations. So the gloves were now off, as we say, especially in the issue. On the 10th of October 1945, so just after the end of the, the war, a group of armed Jews attacked the Atlet immigration camp. This was a notable event because it marked the first synchronized operation between the Haganah, the Irgun, and the Lehi, so the three kind of paramilitary groups that were operating uh, in, in Israel. So the Haganah was kind of under the main uh, issue of leadership. The Irgun was really um, a revisionist underground paramilitary group, and the Lehi as well, but they were much more to the right of even the Irgun, although they were much smaller, and they were certainly more ruthless. Uh, the Stern Gang, as Lehi is always known, also known as here. The group's commanders had been negotiating since August with the aim of uniting the three Yishuv paramilitary groups and coordinating their various campaigns of anti-British resistance. The Jewish agency, of which the Haganah represented the military wing, took overall responsibility for the three groups' cooperation, which would last until August 1946. The main impetus for the association was the eventual realization on the part of the Jewish agency of the Atli government's refusal to discontinue the white paper policy, so it upheld it. In October, the four representatives signed an agreement to operate as the Hebrew resistance movement with the athlete operation, as I just talked about, their first joint maneuver. On the 13th of November, Ernest Bevan, who thought that Britain should give up its influence in the Middle East and under increasing pressure, especially from President Truman, to allow 100,000 European Jewish refugees into Palestine, formed the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry for Palestine. In so doing, he hoped to bring America into the administrative fold of the Palestine mandate. And as one of the Anglo-American committee, uh, committee members noted, uh, uh, Richard Crossman, upon arrival in Jerusalem, which at this point was certainly no paradise city, he said, Palestine is an armed camp. 
we saw signs of this almost as soon as we crossed the frontier and we, we became more and more aware of the tense atmosphere each day. Many buildings have barbed wire and other defenses. We ourselves were closely guarded by armed police and often escorted by armored cars. It is obvious that very considerable military forces and large numbers of police are kept in Palestine. The police are armed. They are conspicuous everywhere and throughout the country there are, there are substantially built police barracks. This was in 1946, so they could have said to him, welcome to the jungle, right? Okay, so that's the context. Now I'm going to begin kind of the talk proper, if that makes any sense. On the 14th of May 1948, British soldiers lowered their flag for the last time in Palestine. The, the last High Commissioner, Sir Alan Cunningham, had broadcast his final message to Palestine to the country's Arab, Jewish and British communities, all divided and now at war with each other in all but name, over the Palestine Broadcasting Service the day before. With no, with no small degree of occasion, Cunningham declared, and I quote, Tomorrow at midnight, the final page of history of the British mandate in Palestine is turned. On the morrow, a new chapter opens and Palestine's history goes on. It is not my wish at this period of the British departure to turn back the pages and look at the past. It would be easy in doing so to say sometimes here we did right and no doubt at other times there we did wrong. For in this complex matter of the government of Palestine, the way ahead has not always been clear and the future has often been obscure. In this respect, we are more than content to accept the judgment of history. Rather, I would wish to say only if it, if it so be that by our going, we bring eventual good to the peoples of Palestine, that none of us will cavil at our departure. That's the end of this quote. Now, a few hours ahead of midnight on 14th of May, David Ben-Gurion, the leader of the Yishuv, would read aloud the Zionist Declaration of Establishment of the State of Israel, unilateral declaration, which notably did not define the borders of the new state. Now, in so doing, Ben-Gurion would pour petrol over the flames of an already out of control conflagration between Palestine's Arab and Jewish populations, and their conflict continues to this day with no immediate hope for resolution. Now, while Cunningham was certainly correct in his wish that I just talked about to not turn back the paper, uh, the pages and look at the past, the historian cannot, and this historian cannot, by definition, avoid such a duty. And indeed, Cunningham himself recognized the necessity of such action only two months later when he gave an address at Chatham House in London on the 22nd of July entitled Palestine, the last days of the mandate. Now back in the relative quietude of England and estranged from the chaos of, of Palestine, Cunningham uh, could recount more candidly that it had taken him, and I quote, only a day or two in Palestine to come face to face with the difficulties inherent in the dual obligation imposed by the Balfour Declaration, end of quote. By the time that Cunningham had assumed the high commissionership, and I quote again, Jewish terrorism was rapidly increasing and widespread sabotage had been carried out by the Haganah in addition to the murders of the Irgun, Zweileumi and the Stern Group. That's Cunningham, end of quote. And to further complicate matters, he says, and this is another quote, propaganda by American Jewry was getting an increasing hold on the minds and the pockets, interesting choice of words, of the Americans. While the Arabs, although physically quiescent, were nonetheless vocally violent and bitter. Cunningham's immediate task then was, and I quote, to quieten the country to enable the Anglo-American committee to sit. Now, to this end, he, Cunningham noted that Jewish immigration, as always, was the key to the situation. And in this, in this respect, Cunningham's hands had been tied through the quotas imposed by the 1939 White Paper on one hand, and by their necessary corollary, from the Jewish perspective at least, illegal immigration to Palestine on the other. However, Cunningham marked with frustration, and I quote, the place to stop illegal, illegal immigration was in the countries from which these wretched people sailed illegally in leaky and unserviceable boats, crowded like cockroaches. But at no time did we get the cooperation from those countries which we had the right to expect. The spectacle of a world refusing themselves to make permanent provision for any of the unhappy people, yet allowing their laws to be broken with the result of furthering even more the unrest in Palestine was yet another sign of the instability from which we were all suffering. That's the end of quote. Now, equally frustrating for Cunningham was the fact that right up to the very end of the mandate, and I quote again, all decisions on policy, when there were any decisions, had to be made outside Palestine, while we had to deal continually with the reactions to them inside the territory. 
and which had created a singularly difficult situation for the administration. And clearly, during Cunningham's tenure as High Commissioner, at least, the weight of these reactions upon the British administration had come from Britain's, uh, from Palestine's Jewish community and in a most impossible form. Cunningham explained to his audience at Chatham House, and I quote, to deal with the terrorists, however, was an entirely different problem than dealing with the Haganah. So dealing with Irgun and Lehi was different than dealing with Haganah. And I continue the quote, these were true underground movements which had learned much and indeed had recruited members from the underground movements which had achieved success in Europe during the war. Their murderous attacks were of the tip and run variety, carried out after much reconnaissance and preparation. After them, the perpetrators sank back into the population under whose cover they were dispersed. Here was no formulation for the soldiers to attack, but furtive individuals probably widely separated and unknown to each other. And the only sure method of stamping out this evil was in cooperation with the local population, end of quote. Such cooperation, however, had not been forthcoming. Although Cunningham claimed that his police and military had rather more success than was popularly supposed in combating Jewish terrorism, he nonetheless recorded that, and I quote, neither from the Jewish agency nor from the Jewish people did we get the cooperation we required, end of quote. Thus, British forces had continually been forced to fight a losing battle and one which had only intensified as time wore on. Indeed, he noted pointedly that the final stages were perhaps for the British in Palestine, the most trying time in the history of the mandate. Now, after the UN vote on the 29th of November, which resulted in Resolution 181 to partition Palestine. And once it became clear, and I quote, that the Arabs and Jews would undoubtedly become engaged in force, end of quote, the British set a date for their departure. As such, Cunningham co continued, and I quote, the government of Palestine, therefore, during those final few months, was committed to do nothing which could be construed as, an, as the enforcement of partition. In fact, to remain neutral between the two hotly contesting sides. In the event, practically everything the administration had to do was construed as either helping or preventing partition, and the anomalous situation in which we were thus placed greatly added to our difficulties in maintaining impartiality, end of quote. Cunningham further noted that he had suggested, and I quote, some six months before May 15, 1948, that a five-man UN partition commission should send an advance party of its secretariat to Palestine to take over essential services as far as it could before the British left, end of quote. In point of fact, and I'm quoting again, sorry, only four members of the UN, UN secretariat were sent and they were not authorized to take over anything. Consensus frustration in this speech. The British administration thus departed on the 15th of May with no replacement administration in place. And I quote, the British were blamed for not having handed over to anyone, whereas in point of fact, there was nobody to whom to hand over, end of quote. As he explained, and sorry to keep quoting, but it's, it's interesting stuff. The British in Palestine, who had for many years tried to do their best for the country, would be the last people who would want to see the country sink into chaos. And during the last six months of the UN, uh, during the last six months, the UN Partition Commission was kept fully informed as to the step, steps necessary to prevent this, end of quote. But sink into chaos it had. Jewish terrorism against the British governance in Palestine, against British governance, governance in Palestine and its concomitant partner, illegal immigration, had both continued relentlessly and indeed had increased in intensity during the last six months of the mandate. And this, while a civil war now also waged between Palestine's Jewish and Arab populations. Illegal immigration, which had started with Hitler's chancellorship in 1933, began in earnest in the wake of the 1939 White Paper. Now, rather pointedly in that year alone, 1939, 17,000 out of a total of 27,000 immigrants, a staggering 63% to Palestine were illegal. By comparison, during the six years of war in the Jews' hour of greatest need, just over a third as many people, or approximately 7,200, managed to set sail for Palestine in the whole six years. And, in the vast major and the vast majority of these refugees were either deported back to whence they came or interned in Mauritius. That is, of course, those boats that weren't bombed, either perversely by the Haganah, such as the Patria, or by the Soviets, such as the Struma Mekfura, um, or shipwrecked, such as the Salvador. There were a whole bunch of immigration boats that just didn't make it. From the end of the war in Europe until the day when the United Nations issued Resolution 181, so in other words, from April 1945 to December 1947, 
Over 44,000 illegal immigrants, the vast majority of them refugees from countries that had been occupied by the Nazis, sailed for Palestine. Most of their ships were intercepted by the British and diverted to either Haifa or from the 12th of August 1946 to detainment camps in Cyprus. Now, the last straw in this respect for both British nerves and more importantly, Britain's perception in the eyes of the international community came with the mandatory administration's mishandling of the SS Exodus immigrant ship on the 18th of July 1947. On that day, as it approached Palestinian waters, British officials boarded the ship, which was carrying 4,515 passengers, and in the ensuing fracas, one crewman and two passengers died from British inflicted wounds. British officials towed the ship to Haifa Harbour and with members of the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine watching, they were there on their, on their, on their fact-finding mission, it put, its refugee, put the refugees onto three British ships, which were then deported back to France. Upon arrival in the French harbour of Port de Bouc near Marseille, the three ships' passengers refused to alight and the French government refused to coerce them to get off the ship. In the end, the British government sent the ships to Hamburg and their British crew forced them to finally disembark there. The refugees, the majority of whom had been former concentration camp inmates, now perversely returned to Germany, where they were housed in German displaced person camps, many of which were former concentration camps and which were staffed by Germans. Now, perhaps no other event in what was now a sea of bad public relations disasters for the British administration did more to turn world opinion decidedly in favor of the plight of European Jewish displaced persons who clearly wanted to emigrate to Palestine and against the British government, which would apparently go to such inhumane lengths to prevent their entry there. Indeed, its response to the clear need once Hitler became chancellor for an increase in Jewish immigration and its further response to the consequential phenomenon of Jewish illegal immigration, which was, it should be remembered, a direct effect of the stringent immigration quotas that the 1939 White Paper had determined, was the one area where the British government really seemed to misjudge its policy and actions during the administration of the Palestine Mandate. Now, hand in hand with Britain's dogged adherence to the White Paper immigration quotas and subsequent Jewish illegal immigration, came the campaign of Jewish anti-British resistance that, in the eyes of its perpetrators at least, was its necessary corollary. An examination of Jewish outrages, that's the British term for these activities, um, that the various underground groups, the Haganah, the Irgun and the Lehi, committed against the British mandatory government from the 1st of February 1944 to the 29th of November 1947, the November rain. In other words, from Begin and the Irgun's declaration of revolt, against the British in Palestine on February 1st, 44, to the day that the United Nations passed Resolution 181, so 29th of November, 47, yields some rather chilling results. Um, and I'm gonna break this trajectory down into two further periods. First, from the 1st of February, 1944, until the end of April, 1947. So in other words, from Begin's declaration of revolt, until the British requested that the UN place the Palestine question on the agenda of the UN General Assembly's second regular session, and that it further convene a special session to prepare the assembly as such. And the second uh, kind of period, kind of mini period, from the 1st of May to the 29th of November, 1947. In other words, from the first UN special session on Palestine until the UN passed Resolution 181. If it's a bit confusing, don't worry, I'm gonna put up in slides in a minute. Now, um, before I do, um, I just wanna mention I'm deeply in Indebted to my to 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 my colleague, my research assistant Jack Edmonds, who compiled a list of all of these Jewish anti-British terrorist outrages that I'd photographed. I'd photographed thousands of telegrams and um, and reports between Cunningham and and the Secretary of State, um, and put them into an Excel spreadsheet and then a calendar, which is rather um, chilling to look at, I would say. Um, and. Let me just get, uh, hold on. For, okay, and, I, and I'd like to maybe before I begin the presentation of some of this data, um, state three caveats that are uh, important for the subsequent presentation. First, some disparities were inv will invariably have crept in over time between British contemporary reports of the incidents from which the data I'm going to talk about comes and their subsequent historical investigation. It's really impossible to achieve complete accuracy with their details and thus they should not be understood to always represent the final word or the final number in the matter, but rather British contemporary reaction to the recurrences. Indeed, such accuracy for my study is of secondary importance. The intention rather is to give, to give um, the, the listener or the reader an idea of the magnitude and nature of the attacks and not to catalog them. 
although this is an effect which eventually transpired. And the second, where there are duplicate reports, um, I've used the more cautious figures. I've always gone for the lower figures, and more importantly, I've not tried to interpolate reports. So for example, if a telegram or report states bomb explosions in Tel Aviv and Haifa, I count these as only two incidents, although it's clear that more than one bomb went off. And if the report states, and I quote, British and Jewish police shot at in Haifa, I count this as only one incident, since no further more exact numbers are recorded. Likewise, reports such that uh, uh, such as rail railway bridges blown out, which happened um, throughout the course of one evening on the 15th of July, I'm going to get it wrong. Anyway, um, are counted as only one incident, in spite of the fact that it is clear that more than one bridge was blown out. Certainly a horrible experience for anyone traveling on a night train <laughs> whose axles must have rose meters into the air upon detonation. In any case, what I'm trying to say is the figures that I'm going to quote to you now are all conservative, est conservative estimates. Finally, all incidents in this compilation are what I would call serious terrorist incidents, shootings, bombings, mine explosions, abductions, bank heists. In other words, what I would say force majeure, right? They do not take into consideration instances of day-to-day -day petty crime. Okay, so here we go. Fasten your seatbelts. So between the 1st of February 1944 and the 30th of April 1947, the British administration in Palestine reported a total of 253 terrorist outrages, all carried out by Jewish underground paramilitary forces and all directed towards British infrastructure. Notably, however, and you'll see here, there were no um, instances of Jewish anti-British terror at all from November uh, where am I? There we are, November 44 until May 1945, so in the final six months of the war. But with Hitler's suicide, the Nazi surrender, and the Allied victory in Europe, they began again um, and in earnest. Indeed, most of the reported incidents that I just talked about occurred between May 45 and April 47, right? Uh, upwards of 214 in approximately 750 days, or one outrage, one report of an outrage every three and a half days. The vast majority of these outrages were due to bombs or mine explosions that Jewish groups directed at trains, train stations, police stations, bridges, armored cars, and other military targets. British contemporary reports, sources report over 145 such incidents. The next most frequent types of outrage reported were direct attacks on personnel, shootings, stabbings, and assassinations of which there were 47 recorded incidents. Similar in number, but no less harrowing, were the 13 reports of kidnapping and from the 26th of December 1946 onwards, floggings of British soldiers and police. Finally, bank heists and plunder, especially of British weapons caches, um, of which there are 17 reports, made up the remainder of Jewish outrages reported from the beginning of Begin's revolt until Britain referred the Palestine mandate to the UN in April 1947. A total of 359 people were killed and a further 651 injured during this first period. Big numbers. Again, the bulk of these injuries were sustained in attacks that actually occurred after the war, between May 1945 and April 1947. Thus, within less than two years of the war's end, 324 people were killed, an average of one every two days, um, and 640, an average of just one person, per, uh, just under one person per day, had been injured in Palestine as a result of Jewish anti-British terrorism. Um, and and 91 of these people were all killed in one day, the day of uh, uh, July, uh, July 15th, I'm going to always get the date wrong, um, 46th, the, the day that King David Hotel was bombed. Just to give you an idea of of just one month. This is the month before the King David Hotel bombing. I don't know how well you can read this, but I gotta put my glasses on for this. Um, you know, you get on on June 4th, train blown up in Haifa. The next day, explosion at the railway station. The seventh, attack on Jerusalem clinic, one wounded. On the 10th, attack on passenger trains, trains blown up. Next day, explosions in houses in Tel Aviv. Soldier stabbed in Tel Aviv. Bomb thrown off roof of the old city, etc., etc., etc. Indeed. Uh, uh, the, the things would only get worse as 1947 wore on. And in the months that paralleled the United Nations Special Committee of Palestine and the General Assembly deliberations, which resulted in the UN Resolution 181, which recommended the partition of Palestine. So in other words, from the 1st to May 
1st of May to the 29th of November, or approximately 240 days, witnessed no fewer than, uh, where am I, sorry, 173 terrorist outrages, one every one and one third days. As in the first period that I've talked about before, bombings and mine detonations form the bulk of these incidents, over 84 in total or one every three days. There were a further 46 reports of shootings or other personal attacks, eight kidnappings in, uh, uh, where, sorry, sorry, uh, there we go, eight bank heists or holdups and four reports of arsons. These kidnappings, by the way, the eight kidnappings included those of two soldiers named Pace and Martin, who were kidnapped by the Irgun and whose bodies were eventually found hanging from two trees. When soldiers went to cut them down, they discovered all too late that the bodies had been booby-trapped and exploded. Notably, um, British officials also recorded the first incidences of Arab attacks on Jews, which they put at only 10, which killed eight and wounded 20, a comparatively, a comparatively inconsequential number, but one that is certainly important for indicating how intolerable the situation of continued terrorist violence had now also become for Palestine's Arab citizens, even if they, for the most part, had not been the direct target of such aggression, um, certainly post-white paper. So in total, during this final harrowing period of, British, of Britain's active administration of the mandate, upwards 100, of 134 people were killed and 458 uh, injured as a result of Jewish anti-British terrorism. And the total for the whole period that I've just talked about, under for the 1st of February 1944 to December 1945, uh, 47, um, adds up to more than 456 reported incidents. So 456 reports um, uh, of bombings, mine explosions, shootings, stabbings, kidnappings, grand larceny and arson, which killed approximately 500 predominantly British, but also Jewish and Arab soldiers, policemen, civil servants and civilians and injured over 1,100 more. Now, by comparison, the whole period of the IRA terrorist attacks in London from the Provisional Irish Republican Army's first operation on the 8th of March 1973 until the Good Friday Peace Agreement on the 10th of April 1998, so over 25 years, there were fewer than 300 reported incidents in which approximately 850 people were injured and fewer than 50 killed. And this in a city of almost 7 million inhabitants. The campaign of Jewish anti-British resistance in Palestine, which spanned less than four years, but which caused significantly more injuries and 10 times as many deaths than the IRA campaign in London to a population that was less than one third as large, thus towers in comparison. Think about that. I mean, it's amazing. During the 1947 Commons debates on Palestine, which I discuss elsewhere in, my, in the research, Winston Churchill repeatedly referred to the 100,000 British soldiers stationed in Palestine. He wanted to get them home. The 100,000, that's a, what, was, what was there. It's perhaps thus sobering to note that during the height of the British Army's campaign in Northern Ireland in 1974, and for a population that at just over 1.5 million inhabitants was only slightly smaller than Palestine's, the total troop strength was fewer than 26,000 soldiers, a quarter of that deployed in Palestine. Thus, it's clear, I would say be beyond all reasonable doubt, that Jewish anti-British terrorism was not only effective, but was alongside the protracted campaign of Jewish illegal immigration and the loss of face that British, Britain suffered as a result, the single greatest deterrent to the British Palestinian administration and had a direct bearing on Britain's continual inability to effect a solution for Palestine as per its mandatory obligations. And thus its eventual referral of the Palestine mandate to the UN in April 1947. Throughout the examination of thousands, I would say tens of thousands of pages of official British documents, meeting minutes, cabinet discussions, commons and lords debates, confidential annexes, telegrams, letters, etc that range from the beginning of 1944 until the end of 1947, the issues of Jewish illegal immigration and above all, Jewish anti-British terrorism absolutely dominate throughout. Now, while there were certainly other major contributing factors to Britain's eventual decision to go to the UN, not least the frustration of decades of future policy and decision and the inability to strike a viable modus operandi for executing the mandate, and especially from 1945, complications from the international community, most notably the United States. The dual phenomena 
of illegal immigration and anti-British resistance prevented the British government, both at home and in Palestine, from reaching any effective decision vis-a-vis -vis a future durable solution there. Indeed, the skeptic might uh, need only imagine a counterfactual situation that would see a four-year campaign of terrorism in London, even with its current population of over 8.5 million people, that would involve over 450 individual operations and result in the, in the deaths of over 500 people and injury to twice as many again, to understand how harrowing, harrowingly desperate the degree and magnitude of the situation must have been for the inhabitants of Palestine during the, uh, the years 1944 to 1947. And of course, fighting only increased once Resolution 181 had been passed, but it took on a somewhat different form, more accurately that of a civil war between Arab and Jew, which is discussed in many other works. But the British had, by Cunningham's own admission, um, which, I, which I talked about earlier, ceased to administer the mandate during the last six months, which is not to say that anti-British violence stopped, but merely that it was now part of a much greater conflict, one that sadly continues to this day. Now, one wonders how much of this conflict could have been avoided had Britain managed its mandate for Palestine more effectively and indeed more altruistically. Zionist groups welcomed with jubilation Lord Balfour's letter to uh, uh, Arthur Balfour's uh, Balfour's letter to Lord Rothschild in 1917, and such jubilation only increased when His Majesty's government was granted the execution and administration of the mandate at the San Remo Conference in April 1929, and again when the League of Nations formally approved it in July 1922. Yet, by 1939, feelings of jubilation entered to those of despair, betrayal, and indeed rage. Throughout the 1930s, Zionist and Jewish groups in Europe, America, and Palestine endeavored to get as many Jews as possible out of the Nazi-occupied lands and bring them, for the most part, to Palestine. That the British mandatory administration did little to relax quota restrictions during this period is well documented, and I discuss it elsewhere in the research. Yet, in spite of such obstacles, a significant portion of European Jews, including almost half of German Jewry, did manage to escape, and many found their way to Palestine either legally or illegally. But with the McMichael 1939 White Paper, which I talked about at the beginning, and which the Jews saw as a violation of the terms of the mandate that Britain had accepted, relations between Palestine's Jewish community and the British mandatory government were damaged irreparably, and the Irgun, and eventually also the Stern Group and the Haganah, began their campaigns of anti-British action. The resultant macabre tripartite symbiosis between the mandatory government's dogged adherence to the white paper, the need for further immigration, be it illegal or legal, which it caused, and anti, and, and sorry, a Jewish anti-British terrorism, which sought to push through a more immediate solution for the Jews in Palestine in every way, destroyed British infrastructure, equipment, lives, morale, and not least, support for the Zionist project, even ultimately in those figures such as Churchill, who had been historically its most ardent supporters. So British patience had simply run out. A note on the nature of British policy and rule themselves is necessary. And it's, again, this is kind of a short summary, but I, I feel a need to, to, to address it. So at times, and most notably once the Attlee government had taken over, it would appear that both the Palestine administration and certainly much more often its colleagues in Whitehall ruled with what a sense with, with a sense of what might be described only as improvised chaos. And indeed, that's the working title I've got for this book, Improvised Chaos. One need only to consider the, the appointments of various committees and commissions, both in Palestine itself, but also in Britain and eventually also America, which issued various responses to the situation there and made various recommendations for its solution, but which all ultimately could not confront the naked truth that was inherent in all of their various missions that Britain had created an impossible task for itself in accepting the Palestine mandate. Indeed, with regard to policy indecision, I would say, and the continual appointment of ever new committees to report on reports of reports, uh, and which almost always came up with recommendations that had been rehashed from the predecessors, the British government seemed more often than not to be locked in a game of tug of war with itself. Perhaps the, most, the single most important contributor, contributor to this phenomenon was the even greater phenomenon of British self-interest. And it's noteworthy indeed to see that the same motivation of self-interest and the resultant indecision and ineptitude that it spawned continually informed or misinformed, I would say, British policy in Palestine from the period of World War I 
to 15th of May 1948 when Britain retreated from Palestine with, on the surface at least, great pomp and dignity, but certainly internally a sense of overwhelming failure, made even bitterer by the huge loss of life and indeed face that the British that the crumbling empire had suffered in the final years of the mandate. Now, don't cry. <laughs> Perhaps things might have gone different, differently had Ernest Bevan not been foreign secretary in the wake of the Second World War. And I've talked about Bevan um, at a lecture just a couple of weeks ago, and I won't go into too much detail here, but I would just say that he stands out as perhaps one of the most curious and very, enough, very often aggravating figures of the Attlee administration. His dogged refusal to understand the plight of European Jewish displaced persons and continued resistance to the question of the immediate immigration of 100,000 displaced persons to Palestine, in spite of great pressure, first from Truman in the US, but eventually also the international community, especially in the, in the wake of the Exodus affair, indicates an inability or an unwillingness to place personal ideology below any sort of practical and political to say nothing of humanitarian utilitarianism. So no matter what one's political or personal position might be on these events that I've talked about, um, I suppose if you know if we put ourselves in 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 the heads of the, of the you know the Haganah, the Lehi, and 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 the Irgun, we we might we might not be able to accept what what happened. We might be able to understand why it did happen. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Right. Nonetheless, I neither here now or in the study itself. Um, I, I, I make no uh, no attempt to advocate or excuse terrorism, neither historically nor in the present day, but seek merely to understand what drove the British to all but flee from the Palestine Mandate in 1948, like a dog with its tail between its legs, and notably having burned all but only the most official of documents that it housed in its various administrative centers there. While on one hand recognizing that Jewish anti-British terrorism was a key catalyst in Britain's eventual decision to give up the mandate, um, it is nonetheless incumbent upon me to draw a difference between, I mean, Irgun, Haganah, and uh, kind of Lehi tactics, if only superficially. So I would say that, the, you know, the Irgun and the Haganah always directed their attacks toward the British mandatory infrastructure. And in the case of the Irgun, official representatives of the administration. That's not to say that there wasn't civilian collateral damage. Um, but but the, the, but, the, but the attacks were always directed towards British administration. Now, not so the Stern Gang, who were much more indiscriminate in every way. They had a real appetite for destruction, these guys. And while, it, it, um, it, let me just, <laughs> you are, I think we're going to skip over this bit. Um, I, I, I just wanted to say that kind of my role, uh, or my intention in writing this book, as is the intention of most historians, is to explain and not to excuse this, right? And I, that, that's, I think, what I want to uh, round off this section by saying. And so we left, concluded Cunningham at his Chatham House address. He continued, and I quote, it is a melancholy business presiding over such an occasion, but I sincerely trust that we left with dignity using all our efforts to the last for the good of Palestine. For three years, we had been ruling for, yes, for three years, we had been ruling Palestine without a policy amid turbulence, vilification, assassination, and kidnapping. That the British should have been able to stand the strain for so long without a goal to aim at was due to the superlative quality of the civil service, whose integrity, impartiality, and courage went were beyond praise, the standard of which could have been reached by no other nation." End of quote. Now, Cunningham's words are notable for their poignancy and indeed honesty. Examination of his correspondence demonstrates over and over again how truly he embodied the spirit of noblesse oblige. His unwavering comments to and support of his staff and his documents is matched only by his frustration with the various groups that put them into situations of existential threat and indeed by a Whitehall administration that was content to, prevar to prevaricate on its Palestine policy over and over again and to their det detriment. Cunningham's claim that the level of such exemplary action could have been, and I quote, reached by no other nation, lacks perhaps the corollarily requisite observation that I would say no other nation could perhaps have so mismanaged the Palestine mandate. Indeed, it was a source of constant, uh, of a constant sense of, I would say, cynical irony to me to observe Britain's mishandling of the Brexit vote as, and subsequent negotiations throughout the whole period um, in which I researched and wrote this uh, book. The fact that such similar devices continued to be employed by British politicians almost a century apart, 
the unwillingness to commit to apparently any proposed new plan that might drive policy forward, the need to play one's cards close to one's chest in the name of never, one's never giving one's game away and in the hope of gaining much more by so doing, the desire to have one's cake and eat it too, and not least, the overriding need to preserve British interests, which informed all of these, suggests that the British long durée of political improvised chaos is more strategy than it is happenstance. Cunningham concluded, and I quote, out of all the somewhat unhappy experiences of the last days, one thought at least can give us satisfaction. Not only in Palestine, but in the, United, in the United States, Soviet Russia and elsewhere, our rule in Palestine has too often been held up as an exploitation of dependent peoples, as an instrument of imperial policy. There can no longer be any doubt in the eyes of the world as to the true nature of the problem. A bitter context between Jews and Arabs, each fearing domination by the other, in which the mandatory power standing between has been continually denounced, first by one community and then by the other, as showing favor to the other side. The true problem is now clear, and so history will judge it. I'm sure all of us who have had to work in Palestine during the term of the mandate are well content to accept that judgment." End of quote. Well, indeed, history has proven Cunningham correct in this final observation. Nonetheless, and over 70 years of Palestinian-Israeli conflict notwithstanding, we should not forget the rather instrumental role that Britain played both in the creation of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine and in the perpetuation of a conflict that continues to this day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, for uh, a fascinating talk. Uh, the question and answer um, tab is open for questions and we already have a question from uh, Tudor, the exercise will be that I will read the questions and you answer them. And to our uh, audience, if you do not want your name to be mentioned and to ask the question anonymously, just uh, note this, please. So the first question from uh, Tudor Parfit, uh, what do you think the British, in fact, could have done to bring the mandate to a harmonious conclusion? Um, Tudor, thanks for the question. <laughs> We're, um, I would say not have taken it up in the first place. <laughs> I, I think that... Uh, um, it, 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 it was so fraught with with um, double dealing. I can't think of a better word to say that right uh, to say right now uh, to use right now. But really, it was clear from the beginning. I remember one of the very first files I looked at at um, at, at, at the beginning of when I was researching this. It was something like the first or second week into the mandate. And I can't remember who was writing it. It was kind of an official kind of thing saying, "There's no way we're going to be able to do this." But this is from like 19, you know, 1920. So, so I think in a way, um, I don't think there's anything they could have done, quite honestly. I think perhaps had they imposed partition and uh, imposed it and thought about it sooner. But, but you know, by 1947, they had had the mandate for almost 30 years. They had been certainly occupying the country for 30 years. So I think in a way, by that stage, there was almost nothing they could have done that would have been harmonious. It would have been kind of similar to India, Pakistan, um, you know, but 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 still it would have been probably better than what's happening now. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Uh, we have two questions, one from an anonymous uh, attendee and the other from Danielle, who are basically the same, uh, questioning uh, or asking you for some clarification on the terminology you use. Uh, terms like terror and terrorism, Danielle is writing, uh, uh, where are they in use? What other terms were deployed to describe the frequent violence? So this is the terminology of the reports from Danielle's right. question, and the anonymous so, is asking actually for your terminology. What do you call terrorism? If you could maybe combine it. It's not about how I define it, it's about how they define it themselves. I'm using the terms that they themselves define, or they themselves use to define what they're doing. Both the size of, let's say, the, the Irgun and the Lehi themselves. I've said, I probably Haganah wouldn't call it that, they would call it, you know. Um, uh, um, but I also use the terms that the British use. So, so I mean, if you if you listen to what I was saying, quoting Cunningham, he uses the words terrorism over and over again. So I think what I'm trying to do is understand how the is trying to what I'm trying to do is put myself in the heads of the British and try to understand what they understood, how they received information, how they processed information, and how they reacted to it. If they can count this as terrorism, that this how that's how I'm going to call it. It's not what I call it; it's what they call it. And also, I would I would say as someone who's a kind of you know. My, my whole research focuses on, let's say, revisionist, um, anti-British 
uh, resistance. I mean, these groups call themselves terrorist groups, and and proudly so. I mean, we 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 you know we kind of shudder from uh, from this word in 2000 whatever year 2020. You know, but it, but they're quite quite proud to call themselves that. The, the whole point of why do I say terrorism, by the way? And and here's maybe. Um, forget about what the British say, but why do the groups themselves um, call themselves terrorists? Because as Cunningham alludes to in his discussion, they did not make themselves known. So whenever they undertook an action, they went in very secretly. They, 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 the whole terror was people did not know who was the terrorists, when they would strike or how they would strike. That was the point. That was absolutely a goal. And that's why it's called terrorism and not just, I mean, I say anti-British resistance a lot, but it was more than that. The intention was to terrorize, and there, there's no getting away from that. So there's no point in mincing words or, or any. That's 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 how they themselves define themselves. That's also how the British saw them. So as a as kind of a responsible historian, I think I'd like to say, you know, who doesn't have a trouble a trouble so much confronting this kind of language? I think we should we should use the language they use. Uh, Peter, uh, a sign of the huge interest that your talk is uh, uh, creating is the number of questions we have. I'm already, uh, have, I already have to apologize. I don't think we'll have a chance to cover all of them. Hopefully we will, uh, but let's try and move a little bit uh, faster. Uh, Marcus is asking, in your opinion, did Ben-Gurion give tacit approval to the actions I'm sorry, of the Irgun and Lahi? in order to advance uh, the exit of the British? I'm assuming he must have given the Haganah uh, uh, approval, right? So, so Marcus, um, yes, tacit approval, absolutely. There is an uh, there is an account in Richard Crossman's diary, if I'm not mistaken, who was one of the members of the Anglo-American Committee, where they visited Ben-Gurion at Steyboker, um, and they, they mentioned that, you know, when they were leaving, they had to leave under armored with armored cars and everything. And Ben-Gurion winked to him and said, don't worry, we've spoken to the, you won't be terrorized tonight. And he, with a wink in his eye. I mean, they were very complicit in all of this, without a doubt. Okay, thank you. Um, just a, a technical note, uh, I'm asked if I can unmute the attendees. I'm afraid not. I don't know if there is a way. I, I, uh, that's the live event uh, uh, format that uh, uh, teams allow us. Um, so uh, the next question in line is uh, from an anonymous. Uh, many historians would agree that the mandate nurtured and supported the Zionist buildup in Palestine in terms of uh, institution building, uh, e economical resources and uh, security structures. To what extent were British officials in the 40s conscious of the fact that uh, we created this monster, quote unquote. OK, so so I want to correct perhaps one thing. Many historians would agree that the mandate nurtured and supported. Yes, the designer, that was their that was the mandate. The mandate was to was to build up uh, and nurture Zionist uh, a Zionist uh, 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 settlement for lack of, with I mean in its kind of older version of uh, understanding of the word right so so that that was the international community by the way sanctioned this the British mandate for Palestine is a legal document issued by the League of Nations so uh, so absolutely that was the, that was their mandate they were mandated to do this but yes I would agree I think British officials in the 40s and even before that were conscious of the fact that they I don't know if they created a monster, but we took on a role that we could not, we, we could not fulfill. I think that's probably the more accurate way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Scharf is asking, uh, thanking you and asking, uh, did your last sentence say something about continuing responsibility? If so, what is it? What is No, this? no, 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 not so much that, but I think we forget in the discussion between, you know, in, in kind of the, the, the Palestinian, um, Israeli con con conflict. We forget about the role of the British, uh, of Britain as a mandatory power in, 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 in you know, in, in not finding, um, not leaving with a, with a solution in place and then thus perpetuating what's going on to this day. Not, you know, not actively still, but certainly um, it wasn't just a question of the two communities not being able to get along. I mean, the, 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 the fact was that the, the power, the, the country that took over the mandate and said we're going to, you know, affect this uh, the terms of this mandate did not do so. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a question about technique, uh, let me go, uh, which I also had in mind. Uh, so can you say something uh, a little bit of, uh, about flagging? Flogging. Uh, this, uh, flogging, you said, right? Yeah, like whipping. Whipping, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the question says that this seems a very unusual method as it must have been done in private and not in public. What was its intention and its es uh, uh, effect or es essence? And also, um, yeah. Okay, so it was done to terrorize. 
Absolutely. You know, it was done to scare, if you pardon my expression, you know, the, the, the whatever out of the soldiers, because, it, you know, it wasn't just a question that they could be, let's say, abducted or taken. They would be taken and whipped. And, and some, I, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't don't quote me 100 percent on this, I think it was both done privately and, pub, you know, not publicly, publicly, but that there was um, done in a public place, you know, and, and but um, I have to I, I would have to I'd want to check that to before I say that with complete um, um, certainty. Yeah. All right, uh, some pushback on uh, terrorism as a term again. Um, your historical actors in this, like the British, are colonizers. If the British colonizers call it terrorism and you use the term terrorism, then you are legitimating a colonial interpretation of history. I, I, don't, I mean, I, you know, I, you brought out a very important point is that the, terror, the people who did it themselves call themselves terrorists. So I think that I've explained that already. Yeah, all right. Uh, Roman Vater, hi Roman, is hey, asking Roman. Uh, <laughs> uh, how would you compare the Zionist campaign against the British to the Arab rebellion of uh, 36 to 39 in terms of their influence on the British decision to retreat from Palestine? Roman, it's a great question. You're absolutely right. Um, I mean, uh, there, there was an absolute parallel here. And the, and the irony, of course, is that the Irgun and the Lehi and the later the Haganah learned from the Arab rebellion. I mean, the Arab rebellion was directed against the British, not against the Jews. And so, so there's absolute parallel. Um, I think the, 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 I guess where it went differently is that after, um, uh, in 1939, this resulted in a white paper that was meant to kind of smooth over um, sorry, I'm getting emails at the same time. Went, went to smooth over. Um, oh my God, the whole world's exploding. exploding. Everything's exploding. Um, yeah. You know, they, they went to smooth over and kind of quash the Arab rebellion, but in a way that was kind of uh, meanable to both groups. By the t by the, the, the so ten years later, that was impossible, I think. And so you're right, Roman. It's a really great comparison, and and thanks for bringing it up because I should have mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, Joe Bergen is asking, uh, first of all, thanking you for a fascinating talk. Uh, uh, she's writing also, she's looking forward to reading your book. Given the size of the post-Second World War displaced Jewish population and the seeming inevitability that the Balfour Declaration would have to be delivered against uh, in that context, why do you think the British politicians could not see this for themselves? There is only so much that self-interest can be accepted for something that caused so much death and harm. Yeah, I agree, Joe. It's a good question. I think the point is, of course, that the British didn't look far ahead into any of this. That's the point. So that the Balfour Declaration, they thought, oh, yeah, maybe we'll get a couple hundred thousand Jews. And, you know, the, the, its perception is was different on every side. So, so the Zionists were thinking, great, we run with this. We, we're going to have a state now. Whereas the British were thinking, okay, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to play chess, <laughs> you know, with, with two peoples and, and kind of stay in the middle and trying to control the whole thing. And you see, I mean, when I talked about British self-interest, I wasn't just being a bit flippant. I mean, if you see um, cabinet, uh, not cabinet minutes, there's a, there's a, there were minutes, um, I'm trying to remember exactly. Anyway, the, the point is they had kind of representatives from all of the Middle Eastern, you know, the e Egypt office, um, the e Iraq and everything meeting together at the end of the war. And they were talking, you know, like they were still this amazing empire. They just taken out a three billion or three trillion dollar loan from America because they couldn't survive the empire. You know, if you think about what was going on in India and Pakistan, the empire was really crumbling. And and it, it's, it's astounding to me that you would get these kind of old you know, kind of generals or, you know, guys kind of talking about, like, you know, we must preserve British interests. And you, they literally say these, you know, say it in as many words. We have to, what's more, most important for us is British self-interest. And they wanted to maintain a hold in Palestine, Israel, whatever, even after there was some sort of solution from the UN. This is why they delayed, even Ernest Bevan delayed so long in going to the UN, because he didn't want to let go of the control. Uh, Eric Windesland is asking, uh, many historians would agree that the mandate nurtured and supported the Zionist buildup in Palestine in terms of institution buildings, uh, economical resources. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm sorry. That was uh, all right. Repeat it. Uh, so an anonymous question. We historians cannot simply claim that we use the terms that historical actors used. Oh, that's uh, going back to that. Okay. Uh, we're responsible for the language we use. I guess we'll get, take it as a, as a, 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 just as a note and continue because. Good, uh, yeah, I absolutely still stand behind my use of the word terrorism. I mean, I don't really know why we, what's, what's the point of going around in that question is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark Sullivan is asking, uh, th again, thank you for quoting Sir Alan Cunningham's speech 
to the RAAA in July 1948, which is never quoted in uh, in the usual histories. Uh, how do your findings about Sir Alan Cunningham's role and approach compare with those of uh, Mat uh, Golani, who has studied Cunningham's time as High Commissioner? He concluded right. that Cunningham's, in effect, allowed partition to emerge by not cooperating with the UN Partition Commission and allowing the Jewish state to form itself uh, in shadow and Transjordan to move into the West Bank. See also Graham Javon's book on uh, uh, Galapasha starting page 58 um, right and which confirms abby's book i mean i i again i mean i i read motti's book i've got it um it, it's my focus was completely different so i mean i i'm more interested in what drove the british out so really my story ends in april 1947 which is why i i split up the data um from from because april 47 was when britain makes the decision to go the, to the united nations so from that point the point of the of the anti-british resistance the terrorism whatever you want to call it was made right that's what that was the catalyst for britain to decide okay we can't do this anymore the the, the last the last six or eight months of that were just kind of um in let's say a purgatory for lack of a better word you know of of of, of them waiting to find out what would happen with the united nations special committee on palestine but once the united nations special committee on palestine was was um engaged the britain really had no more role except to sit and wait so that's why um i really stop and it's kind of a strange thing to say but i'm not i mean i'm interested obviously but I, but but um the, the, what really happened or what really the real the, the the real um uh, movers and shakers from this whole period, it all occurred before April, until April 47 and not afterwards, although the violence was much more in between, but that violence was just, it was violent, you know, there was, the British, British had made their decision. I'm looking at this whole study from the point of view of the British, why they decided to leave. Uh, James Sunderland is, uh, is asking, how has your research so far been greeted by researchers and scholars, especially in Israel, given the prevailing academic opinion for example, by such people as Golani, Segev, and Hoffman, that the Irgun, Lehi, and Agana had little effect on the British decision to add the mandate. And have you encountered any pushback against your argument by such scholars? Maybe I can also add to this. Yeah. Uh, can you say something to the effect of, uh, uh, how would I call them, uh, successors of those organizations and how they accept your terminologies of terrorists and so forth? Right. So, so the, James, good question. Um, so the answer is they don't know yet because I've put, so I presented this about a year ago at a, at a conference, Association of European Association of Israel Studies. But the, the research has only been written up since March. We've got COVID. It's out being peer reviewed at the moment. Um, and that's all I'm wanting to say about that. So at the moment, nobody's had the chance to to kind of hear it unless they've come to this this uh, talk or, um, you know, the talk last year. Um, I, I would say this, and so Yaakov, I think I understand what you're trying to say. Um, there's still a massive division between what we might call right and left in Israel. And and certainly a lot of the reason for what I do is um, to get, to, you know, to perhaps portray a more accurate representation of what really happened without taking a political side. Um, I, I do find, you know, so, so um, what am I trying to say? I, I don't think you could speak to anybody who, who you know, I, I hate to use the terms right and left and stuff as well in the first place. I find it quite problematic. But anyone who, as I say, supports um, the Irgun position and stuff, who would have problems saying that, the, okay, they were, they, the point of the Irgun themselves is to be a terrorist organization. So again, we're going, it's, it's a circular argument because it's not, it's, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, uh, it, anyway, I, I don't, I, I'm I gonna I'm gonna step on your toe one more time Please. with this and asking you about fascism. How right. comfortable are the inheritors of those people yes. with you using fascist and pro-fascist to describe uh, 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 those actors who are well, you know, who, whom you cover in your previous. Book. So I've never used the term fascist or pro-fascist to describe anyone who didn't describe themselves as such. Yeah, great. And and and. Again, this is you know this is an intellectual term. You know, it's it's not a, there's no emotion um, involved when I use these terms. I mean, you know, the, I, I, I'm trying to understand it. I'm trying to analyze it as a historian. I'm not trying to advocate it. I'm not trying to step on it. I'm trying to explain. And then I think the reader, then armed with or the or the listener armed with such information, can make up her own mind. Great. Uh, Eric did write uh, a question. So far, the narrative has been. Palestine-centric. 
have you found evidence of the Jewish revolt impacting British assets other, in other places uh, in the Middle East? For example, the Foreign Office was terrified of the prospect of Zionist attack on the Abadan refinery. Right, but, but again, my point in writing this research was to understand why the British left the mandate for Palestine. Well, not even why they left, why they went to the UN. And then why they left, right? So, so uh, yes, I mean, there, yeah, sure. There's, the, you know, there's, there's the, um, there's the Moyne assassination. There's Count Bernadotte assassination, which took place outside of, of Palestine. But and oh, my battery is running low. Hang on. Ah, I didn't turn on the PowerPoint. Okay, we're good. Oh my God, this country, <laughs> another British thing I can't deal with. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's turning on the PowerPoints. Anyway, um, so, so it's a good question, but it's outside of the scope of what I'm trying to to research. I can tell you. Um, you know, in spite of the fact that I, you know, I, I, I photographed probably about 15,000 documents for this and, and looked at them all, but there's only so much you can write into a work that's already went on to be 100 pages longer than it was supposed to be. And it was close to 600 pages or 700 pages. I can't remember now. So it's, it's that's the problem is knowing what to include and what to stop. But, it, but yes, they're absolutely. So, Eric, yeah, they're absolutely um, is, is evidence of all of this, but it wasn't the point of my 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 research. Peter, this uh, excitement surrounding the question and answer is just a great sound of how interesting and exciting and uh, invigorating your research is. And I guess we all will uh, join in, in congratulating you on the talk and uh, you know wishing for the fast publication of the book so we can also celebrate the publication. I'm just going to close by uh, uh, reading uh, Mark Sullivan's comment that uh, Levi Eshkol liked to call Menachem Begin the terrorist as late as 1967 and he's uh, referencing uh, Avi Raz's book, The Bride and the Dowry. Uh, yeah. I think there's much, so much more to discuss, but we obviously cannot. Thank you again for doing this, and uh, thank you all for attending the talk. So, Jakob, I'm just going to say thank you very much. Before I do, I'm just hoping the copy and paste works. I'm going to make an announcement. I'm going to, there we go. Those are all the Guns N' Roses references that went into the, <laughs> if oh, you can see this, I Let don't know. Let me put it up. Let me put it up. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, no, we, we see the PowerPoint right now. Wait. Uh, okay, I don't know. Oh, really? Okay, so I don't know. Uh, I put it into the chat, the Q&A. Oh, okay. You know to, uh, Wonderful. <laughs> okay. okay. So so anyway, guys, um, so, so thanks very much, Jakob, as always. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Okay.